This is Carcon Carne presented by the Autobahn Mazda of Evanston. The Autobahn Mazda of Evanston now has the brand new 2019 Mazda 3 sedan and hatchback in stock. Check them out, 1015 Chicago Avenue. Autobahn Mazda of Evanston, dealer of the year, as named by Dealer Raider for 2019. In the car right now, the band Vortis. It's Carcon Carne. obvious thing to point to you're Jim DeRogatis I mean Vortis is a band but I think you're also kind of known on your own as author well it's Sunday so maybe not (laughs) maybe not on Sunday yeah author co-host of Sound Opinions uh, music journalist the guy who broke the R. Kelly story that and more yes okay so we're going to cover all that but I want to talk about your band and eat some Mexican food first well that sounds great okay because that's what you and Car 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 easy for you to say not easy to say that's what you're famous for Right. I mean, we're in the in the distinguished presence of bands that have come before us. Uh, Local H, right? Lucas did Local the show. Local H, oh yeah. Yeah. Raygun? And, uh, Raygun. Raygun was in, in this car? Uh, they were in my personal car. Pizzotti was in my personal car. This was before How I did had he the fit? fabulous... Did you have, did you have a moonroof? And did he have to have, like, be... be he does, he does have, have some altitude. That's a, that's a very tall boy. He's a very tall boy. Uh, Billy Corgan was charming-ish. Yeah. <laughs> When he did this? Yeah. You know, James, this is no insult to your uh, podcast, but my, how the Corgan has fallen. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like he's doing car con con carne, and and he's doing the Illinois State Fair. You know what I mean? It's like corn dogs and... uh, uh, remember Smashing Pumpkins? Yeah, no, state I fair, don't. like you expect to see, like Theory of a Dead Man doing a state fair, yeah. or yeah, oh, well, wow, sticks <laughs> for the last fifty years. Yes, uh, Todd Zuckerman of Sticks, fellow drummer, also a previous guest on Carcon. Car. There you go. Uh-huh. There you go. I'm going to insult every guest you had, apparently, <laughs> except <laughs> for Naked Raygun. Uh, uh, by the Always time good at making friends, by the time you and I go to Lollapalooza together, uh, it's just going to be a disaster. <laughs> well, I was banned from Lollapalooza a good decade ago, so don't worry about that. All right, so let's distribute, because we're at the Burrito House. Uh, Jim DeRogatis' recommendation, the bag is already yeah, yeah, in a precarious yeah. state. Like, we're, we're, we're courting trouble here. Uh, I got a couple tacos. I'm going to leave this to you, too. Right, we're going to figure this out. You know what? Louie is the expert distributor of the, yeah. the food. Yeah, Louie and Tony are in the back seat. I should mention. I don't mean to just zero in on Jim, but I have a lot of history with you. I've known you for literal well, decades. you were young James mm-hmm. when we started, and you were the first Sound Opinions... Uh, well, Jelly Corbett yeah. actually was stuck with us early uh, when we were at the Loop, oh. Wyman and I. But then we went to Q101, and, you know, Bill Gamble, mm-hmm. uh, a man of uh, considerable uh, corporate kind of background. You know, I mean, the <laughs> idea was stick young James with these two rock critics, and mm-hmm. they can't fuck up too badly. <laughs> Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? It's a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I thought. You know, Mark Marin. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, you were supposed to, like, ride herd over us. But we also liked you, and that, and you know, the riding herd aspect never yeah, happened. Yeah, actually, I kind of broke with you guys, and away mm-hmm. from Bill's wishes. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I was on Team Jim and uh, Jim and Bill yeah, all the way. Yeah, absolutely. Life. We uh-huh. corrupted you in no time flat. Uh-huh. No you time. Know. Oh my goodness! All right, so wait, you got a quesadilla? I got a uh, steak quesadilla. Steak quesadilla. We thought burritos would be too sloppy, but already I'm yeah. getting steak on the uh, floor. The floor is okay. I, I worry about the the oil on yeah. the seats and the. Well, no, and that's more on the shirt. 
I always wear black. Don't worry about that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Besides black being oh being very God. slimming, uh, it's also a safe bet for spilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what? What? Everything okay? It's, it's my chorizo that's caused all the the, the, the Oh yeah, uh, that makes sense. Your chorizo. My chorizo. Somewhere in that bag are two tacos al pastor. I'm in no hurry. I want you guys to do your thing. <laughs> just take a bite of everything, and yeah, when just, you figure it out, you take your time. We're going uh, slow. It's all aluminum wrapped, tortilla wrapped things. So let's, as you're unwrapping, as you, the big reveal is forthcoming, uh, let's talk a little Vortis history. Tony and Jim, you guys started this band, or win this band back really at the turn of the century. 2000. Yeah. So what yeah. was what was the vision? I mean, because you're a political-minded, you're a noisy mm-hmm. punk rock band, a very Chicago-sounding punk rock band. What was the goal when you... Let me, um, let me start it, Tony, and then you yeah. should pick it up. Um... You know, what happened, James, is my biography of Lester Banks came out. Let it blurt. And uh, it seemed to me, uh, I hate the idea of standing at a podium and doing a book reading. And so uh, it seemed to me in order to celebrate this book about Lester Banks, that music should be part of it. So I had done this project of all uh, of all music critics in town uh, playing songs by or important to Lester. So at that time... Uh, J.R. Jones was writing about music at the Reader. He later became their film critic. Kiki Ablon became the music editor of the Reader. Uh, Steve Knopper, really mm-hmm. good uh, trash organ player. Um, you know, we we covered songs uh, that meant a lot to Lester, the Trogs, the Stooges, or uh, that he wrote because he recorded uh, two albums in his lifetime. And uh, we had a ringer uh, come in on vocals to be Lester, and that was one John Langford who knew Lester uh, in the early days of the Mekons. So, uh, you know, I had adamantly not... Uh, I had refused to play in bands during most of my tenure at the Sun-Times because it seemed to me um, that I could be accused of a conflict of interest. You know, mm-hmm. uh, getting a gig bottom of five at the Fireside Bowl. You know, I, I, I could be accused of, uh, you know... Uh, using my lofty position of influence in the media, right? You know, and then um, doing that project was so much fun. It also just, I realized it was absurd. I've been playing in bands since I was 13. Um, why should I not do that? You know, the... the Hold that thought. Please tell me, and for the love of God, there are more napkins back there. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Louis could go in and get more. It's It's been great listening so far and watching Louis <laughs> try to navigate the this grease. Is, I, this I, was a bad idea. We should have gone for hot dogs. Terrible idea. Have. I mean, I've just got orange grease. I know. Look at that. Oh, yeah. I, man. I, I feel like I'm holding a, a ticking time bomb right oh, here. Oh, man. Uh, all right. So, so Langford, uh, Lester Bings. It, it, it was absurd. I've always been playing in bands. You know, the the reporter who covers the Cubs for the Tribune or the Sun-Times may play softball on the weekend. That does not mean he or she thinks they're going to join the Cubs. Right. right? So, I, I said, fuck it. I want to... I wanna, keep playing and then that's where i'll let tony pick it up so um michael weinstein was um married to my professor at DePaul university and he was starting a band and it was going to be um like a political rap rant type thing like ice cube and start off him doing acapellas at like art galleries then his wife, my teacher, uh, said, hey, we should get some uh, drums and bass involved, which they did. And that's how Jim came in. Dina Weinstein approached Jim, knew them from writing and stuff. And they had some rehearsals. 
and realize, okay, we got to thick up the sound when you guitar player. So I just by happenstance was on uh, DePaul's campus because I had to get some transcripts. And she saw me and she asked me, would you be interested? And she told me a very interesting theory on people joining bands. That there are three criteria. One, you got to be intelligent. Two, you have to be responsible. And three, you should play an instrument in that order. Instrument, yeah, yeah, that instruments order, at yeah. the bottom. That was the least important. Thing. And she knew me as a student. She's like, you fit the first two. I think you can play guitar, so why, <laughs> why don't you try? And so showed up, and then the rest was history. It was sort of her lab experiment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were following Michael, his lead, for the first, uh, I don't know, six years, seven mm-hmm. years, right? And um, I think it resulted in a bit of typecasting, a bit of... Uh, an outsider art aspect, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, if Wesley Willis had had a PhD and <laughs> been a tenured professor for 30 years and written 23 books of political philosophy, uh, that might have been a comparison to Michael, yes? Yeah, Tony? he was an insane <laughs> genius. Yeah, he was he was insane, but a genius. When Tony says Ice Cube, his, his role models were Ice Cube, Iggy Pop, and Noam Chomsky, and he wanted to cross those three. And he really did. He did. He really put so, those yeah. three together. And, you know, I mean, it was great fun for us as punks because, you know, it was a memorable gig uh, where he was ranting and raving about, you know, Osama bin Laden had a point and not the violent part, but Mm -hmm. the anti-global imperialism. And, you know, some guy who uh, had been in the service, uh, you know, hold off and punched him in the face. And uh, we we had many gigs like that. Uh, That outside one, we was talking about the Unabomber, the guy in the bicycle. Yeah. (laughs) They got an argument in the middle of the show. Michael really admired the Unabomber manifesto. Again, not the violent part, but the anti-corporate global hegemony. Uh, which is true, you know, in those insane hundred thousand words, the Unabomber made some good points about Microsoft and, uh, uh, you know, ExxonMobil taking over the world, you know, and then he also, like, wanted to blow people up, which is not very nice, you know. No, not good. Uh, I do want to mention, as we uh, begin our journey together, our odyssey, uh, let's see. Steve Lapino says, Jim Deirogatis was my must-read in the Sun-Times, reviews of concerts, new music, everything. Uh, Dennis Buckley of the much-celebrated Chicago punk band 88 Fingers Louie says, Kaleidoscope Eyes. Now, that was a book. That was a book. That was my first book. Uh, Tracy from Hot Lips Messiah says, Hey, guys. (laughs) We love Tracy. Who doesn't love Tracy? Who doesn't love Hot Lips Messiah? Oh, that new record's amazing. The new record's fantastic. All right, so I digress. Band move forward. uh, Instigating people on stage. uh, Agitainment. That was Michael's phrase, agitainment. Uh As was Vortis. Now, Tony and I both have the Vortis uh, tattoo symbol, right? Tell them what Vortis meant, Tony. Vortis. Is it Beefheart on your arm? Uh, no, yeah. uh, that is Lester Bangs. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but Beefheart also would have worked. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, Vortis comes from an English art movement called Vorticism, which was an offshoot of the Italian Futurist movement. And the concept of the Vorticists, Ezra Pound, was to um, combine all the energies of life, combine uh, media art. Uh, music, sculpture, everything, and you put it when they, was, they had an electrified cone. It was the, um, the, to the revolving ma- energy yeah, cone, revolving energy to the point of maximum energy. Yeah. And basically, every idea was worthwhile. Every concept deserved to be in there. And how it came out is how it came out. Well, I think the best uh, synopsis of their philosophy was uh, to. Search for violent structures of adolescent yes. clarity that was, that was throughout the life. Which, if you break that down out of the academies, is uh, to live with the lust for life of a teenager 
no matter what age you are, which I think was a perfect definition of rock and roll. Absolutely. This is 19, uh, just, just past World War One, you know, so 50 years before rock and roll was invented. And Michael, as a 65-year-old, 70, almost 70 when he was done with the band, uh, philosophy professor, you know, I mean, he was the definition of that. He was perpetually a... Uh, uh, like a 16-year-old in his head with all the good and bad parts of that. <laughs> uh, but it was inspiring. I don't know. I think Tony and I learned a lot about living from... Oh, um, learned a lot about li- everything. Everything. I mean, he, he about was, everything. He was a brilliant guy. And our, our original bass player, Chris, was uh, leaving the band to go to uh, graduate school to get his Ph.D. in... Uh, uh, Victorian poetry? Is it Blake? Blake. Blake. Yeah, specialty <laughs> in William Blake. Um, and so Louis got tapped for a few gigs, and then we never let him go. <laughs> but we have now been a trio for two-thirds as long as we ever right. were part of The Professor. But I, I think uh, many people saw us once with The Professor and said that's about all they ever needed to see. Um, <laughs> except the ones who liked that Vortis and the Vortis of the last... Uh, fifteen years. Those, those are the ones. Those mm-hmm. are the keepers. Yeah, when we like were, Tracy. <laughs> when we were to original play shows, he, I mean, we would play a song. He would give a five minute speech. Yeah, we'd play lecture, another yeah. song. He'd give a five minute speech. Yeah. I mean, and, and now we boil shows down to what twenty six minutes. Yeah, you know, twenty six minutes. Seventeen songs. Eight, Eighteen like, songs. Yeah. Yeah, you have a song on the new album, uh, "Words Don't Matter." That's like two and a half minutes long it's like I'm listening to Yes all of a sudden (laughs) well it's longer because we had it it combines all of our favorite quotes by George Orwell so we uh, I think I think that sort of dictated and it had a chorus which is rare for Vortis so like let's do the chorus three times wow what a radical concept (laughs) so let me jump to the music Uh, the new album is This Machine Kills Fascists there's a song on there now I'm too young to have lived through the O'Banion's heyday of Chicago but we Are Chicago, to me, sounds like what probably... The, the kind of music that was probably playing at O'Banion's circa 1980. Like I don't think any of us... Well, Louis grew up in New Hampshire, and I didn't get here till 91. Tony, did you ever go there? I was too young, actually. Yeah, was I, was, too I was, I was, I'd was. i go to Dirty Nelly's out in Palatine. I'd see bands over there. I guess the reference but, being, but the, it sounds like textbook old-school Chicago. It is. That, that, was, that was the goal with that one. I, um, I actually wrote the lyrics for that one, and it, it, I wrote them that night that... Um, bunch of people shut down trump speaking at uic and i yeah. was just so inspired like good finally someone's doing well it didn't pan out well in the end but yeah but like the resistance starts exactly there. It starts exactly. in chicago and i'm just saying we're chicago that's cool but you know chicago is also not it's got its problems you hear it in the lyrics <laughs> um, but again when making the music that was the idea of just creating a chicago sounding punk rock song we are huge fans of of uh you know, Naked Raygun and Effigies sure. and Peg Boy, yep. uh, Big Black, um, you know, and that period, uh, which I don't think gets its due as part of the roots of alternative rock. Which mm-hmm. is, I agree. Yeah. Didn't really intend to go political, but devil's advocate question. Talking about when Trump got shouted down, knocked out of UIC, is that the way to go for people on the left? Again, a neutral question. Isn't free speech isn't it dangerous to free speech when you don't allow people to have it? Yeah, it's 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 a good point, and I, I always think about that. It's like you know, you say, okay, well, you shouldn't speak, but we should. I mean, that's that's a bit hypocritical, you can say. Um, however, when when you can see the writing on the wall that someone is a very dangerous bully, to use a, you know, just what it's panned out, then you got to say something. And 
you know, it, it's not about free speech. About it's about seeing someone that's actually dangerous. It's like you know, if, if you're saying someone's not hurting someone, that's fine. I, you when know. you've got someone that's saying calling Mexicans rapists, when you have someone that's publicly making dangerous comments, you got to fight back. You know, somehow. if we had the Wayback Machine, James, and we were able to transport ourselves to Berlin, 1935, would it not have been better to shut down? Hitler's speeches that lead to Mein Kampf. It's rhetorical. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, you know, but it, it, here's our, the slippery slope we are on mm-hmm. in 2019. Right. You know, it's, it's. Uh, I believe that in 20 years' time we are going to begin to read the history books and people are going to say, how did this ever happen? How did this ever happen? How did America turn on every fundamental value that we've ever had? You know, uh, a nation of immigrants, a nation of law, a nation of freedom of speech. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you you have a man who we're supposed to stand up for his freedom of speech when he keeps calling the press fake news. You know, and it's, it's interesting. I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. The press, journalism. Some of what I know and have learned about journalism, I learned watching you. And it's hard to explain for people who don't know journalists, who don't, who haven't done that as an occupation. Who've been lucky enough not <laughs> to know journalists, yes. <laughs> but I mean, there almost is. I mean, there's a there's a wiring you journalists have. It, it's this this commitment to the truth, and nothing else matters than getting the truth out and being loyal to the facts, and just writing that. As I mean, the R. Kelly story is a perfect example of that. It's a different different mindset, and when I hear things about fake news and journalism, it, it rankles me because I know intrinsically journalists are the exact opposite of that. It, it is a different mindset. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's hard, right? This is now yes. you cannot have an alternative fact and say that's very soft. It's like a pillow. No, it's it's hard. You know, there are some things that are facts Mm -hmm. Uh, you know like climate change is one Um, you know evolution is another Um, you know then there's this world of subjectivity I've always been a critic I mean you've known me as a journalist and a critic if I'm reporting that Lollapalooza is uh, you know shorting the city and county with seven and a half million dollars of entertainment tax that everybody else would have to pay that's an objection objective fact subjective is my opinion Lollapalooza is a festering pile of shit you know um, uh, we can argue about that but we can't argue about the fact that they got away for seven years without paying taxes and got a start as a non-profit right which is exactly the same thing we see happening now with Lincoln Yards we are going to subsidize them as taxpayers to build this giant, yuppie, uh, you know, uh, controlled community that is then going to have venues brought to you by Live Nation Ticketmaster that will stomp out, continue further stomping out uh, this city's vital, vibrant, independent music community. We can argue about whether that's good or bad. What is so bad, Jim, about the big corporate concert venue as opposed to the small uh, hideout, empty bottle, uh, or the many venues we've lost, Lounge Axe or Fireside Bowl or, uh, you know, Township, uh, Ponchos. 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 What was the place that always smelled? Ronnie's, the place that always smelled like cat piss. Um, 
which was really frightening because there was no cat. Right. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think what we are fighting for now in America and in the Chicago music scene in a microcosm of America is the idea of community or are we going to live in some sort of uh, corporate global hegemony was Michael's favorite phrase and you know I think we've always uh, uh, seen it as the same good fight so yeah as a journalist and as a critic I've been fighting my version of that let's talk a little bit about that thriving independent Chicago music community you've reported on it you've been in it for the past 20 years as a musician Where's it at now as opposed to when you first, let's say, got here from New Jersey? You know, I think uh, I think we're losing venues, but I think um, we often don't step back. Having lived in Minneapolis twice, growing up in New Jersey, traveling a lot, I think we uh, take certain things for granted in Chicago. I mean, there are easily a dozen great mom-and-pop record stores mm-hmm. still. Even mm-hmm. as 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 uh, you know, the sale of music declines and becomes extinct, we have six or seven really great small independent clubs. They become less independent all the time, <laughs> you know. And uh, if I can just add to that, the the, the dangerous part is you know, is the lack of all ages shows. The lack yes. of all that's yep. something we've lost entirely. Yeah, I and completely agree. With I'm, that. I'm again besides being in a punk rock band, I'm a high school English teacher, and I, and I see that with kids. You know, they're they're not going to concerts, they're not yep. going to shows. And when I was a kid, that's what you did. And then when you go to the shows, you buy the records, etc., etc., etc. And then the kids are just getting more slaves to corporations. So what's it, big it's out so there? interesting. I just had this conversation with my teenage, all ages, wanting to go to yeah. son. And his lament is that there's nothing for him to do. His options are so limited. So, it's true. Unless he's going out to Tinley Park or the United Center for a big super arena show, like he can't have those experiences. He really can't, those experiences that we had. Yeah. yeah the other we week I was age. going to see the Viagra Boys. My, my son's like, that's not fair. I want to go. I'm like, dude, you got a few more years. I'm sorry. You know? We have a new mayor. You know, when in your lifetime, James, did you think we would have... A, uh, a female person of color who is gay as mayor of Chicago. Ten years ago, it seemed unthinkable. Yeah, ten years. I, yeah. I was unthinkable last year, I yeah. think. <laughs> you know, uh, I think it was unthinkable a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I would love to see, instead of Emmanuel for eight years paid lip service to this mayor's office of music, mm-hmm. I would like to see an actual uh, mayor's music council mm-hmm. with representatives from you know, clubs and uh, and fans and musicians to deal with issues like, can we figure out a better way to approach the all-ages license? Can we do something? Why on earth the hideout hasn't been landmarked already mm-hmm. to protect it from that encroaching behemoth of Lincoln Yards? Um, you know, I mean, look, Maxwell Street's gone, and it's never coming back. Right. The birthplace of all modern electric music, you know, is Maxwell Street in Chicago, yep. and it's now UIC parking lots. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, we've lost so much history. You know, Chess Records uh, is Ugh. empty. It stands empty. Yep. There's nothing to see, even on the occasions when it's open. You know, Memphis, Detroit, yep. New Orleans, Austin, Texas, have vital, vibrant uh, mayors and governors' offices of music that see this as an income generator. Well, and when you land in some of those cities, you'll hear yeah. that music in the airport. Right at the airport. Chicago's notorious for paying lip service to the blues. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, you know, it's also the birthplace of gospel, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 the rock contributions, which I do not count the '60s. Chicago was pretty dreadfully dire until people like Ray Gun in the '80s, but we could argue that. Um, you know, uh, this city is important ten ways over. Uh, I think it's still the best American music city, but it's mm-hmm. under siege, and every American city is in this time. And look in the macrocosm, you know, we got bigger problems. You know, uh, but it's all part of the same. Hence, Louis, why did we call the album what we called it? This machine kills fascists? Yes. Because we believe in the power of music, man. Yeah, where's it and come from? That's uh, Woody Guthrie, of course. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we got, it's kind of Wilco of us in a way. <laughs> a band we have zero to do with, really. All, all due props to Jeff Tweedy. It's just there's no Wilco in us. We can't play well enough. <laughs> um, and we have no, we have no roots. To be roots rock. <laughs> now these are these are spirited ninety second punk rock songs. Uh, I love clickbait, a song that begins with the driving beat from Jim Dirigatis. Louis wrote that. Oh really? Yeah. Well done. Uh, but <laughs> in an age where all the rules for marketing music and journalism are different, talk talk to me about the very nature of clickbait. As you're writing stuff, as you're posting stuff for your podcast on Sound Opinions. What, what's different about presenting that content to the public? And Jim, how do you toe the line between uh, writing a headline or a, a teaser for a show that's true to what it is and uh, uh, making it sensational enough? Thank you for articulating to, my question much better yeah, than I did. To lure Thank more you. people. Well, Louis was in advertising. <laughs> so we, 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 we feel guilty line. about Thank this. You, uh, yeah. you know, for me, social media is 90% uh, self-promotion. Mm-hmm. I have written this. We have this episode of Sound Opinions. You know, here, check it out. Uh, I don't think it's a way to communicate. Not for real, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in terms of, of an exchange of ideas meaningfully. So I think that that's what that song came up about, right? We were we were decrying TMZ. That kind of stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, TMZ in the last uh, 24 hours has had three or four Kelly stories. You know, they are his official pipeline. Um, they've decided, you know, there's a lot of people being anti-R. Kelly, so we'll be in his corner, which is just sheer perversity. I mean, that's, that's, that's it's like Trump. You know, if people uh, say immigration is good, he'll say it's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll say it, you know, uh, with unrestrained vituperativeness uh, and hate in his heart. Uh, I don't believe he has any real convictions, pro or con, anything, you know, uh, which is sort of the social media world. You, it's all about generating clicks. Uh, I will say, if someone could kindly provide a definition for vituperative yeah, in the I comments say, of the we're Facebook like, Live, that would well, be really, <laughs> really helpful. James, you went to school. I went to Columbia College. Well, I teach yeah. at Columbia College. I taught at Columbia, too. I know. <laughs> uh, this is, I guess this is the halfway point. Kirkland Carney presented by the Audubon Mazda of Evanston. Uh, this is also what's called a reset in radio. Oh, My guest in the very, car. The, very, band, the band Vortis. Very pro of you, James. Very yes. pro. I, I've done some stuff. I know. I know I've, been, yeah, I've, I've been around, for, for Christ's <laughs> sake. Uh, all right, you mentioned R. Kelly. Let's, let's talk about that. You've said this is the book, the book you have coming out. This is the book you didn't want to write. I didn't want to write this book. No. Sometimes destiny chooses you, I guess. Early on, when I was, um, you know, 21 or 22 in my first job as a uh, beat reporter in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, at the Jersey Journal, 
I had two brilliant female editors, and I've gone back to both of them, and they both disagree that they said this. So it was either Margaret Schmidt or Pat Donnelly, and I credit both because one of them said it. Uh, sometimes you choose your story, and sometimes your story chooses you. And I have added uh, the sequel to that. Uh, either way, you're not a journalist if you don't follow it through to the end. So, yeah, all right, this story chose me. Um, you know, and initially you wrote it off when you just kind of pushed, pushed the facts to the side. I got this facts. The whole thing is in the book. Book's out June 4th. Soulless, the case against R. Kelly. Um, yeah, I got a fax that I thought, you know, James, in those days, you knew me circa 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I got a lot of hate mail. Whenever I reviewed Billy Joel or Eric Clapton and called them unrepentant geezers, I got hate mail. Whenever I those reviewed, were your best reviews. Those were, yeah, I, well, I stand by that. And they were geezers 30 years ago, yeah. and what are they now? Yeah. You know, uh, headlining Wrigley still. Well, Billy Corgan's playing the State Fair. Um, not really. He's done better than that. I, anyway, um, reviewing Common, reviewing... R&B reviewing, uh, you know, the hip-hop that was about to explode eventually with mm -hmm. Kanye West. You know, there were a lot of racist readers, too, who would say, yeah. that's not music, that's noise. So I thought that this fax that said, you know, you recently wrote a review, uh, it came two weeks after the review, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving 2000, that compared R. Kelly to Marvin Gaye. Well, Marvin Gaye had his problems, but they're nothing like Roberts. His problem is young girls, and this goes back many years. And I initially tossed it on the junk pile of hate mail. Yeah, thinking, I get that. Uh, you know, but there were a lot of details in there that haunted me throughout Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, among them was the name of a young woman who uh, had filed a lawsuit that had never been reported. There were other people. Uh, and, and the single thing that stuck out was uh, the name of a sergeant uh, in Chicago in the sex crimes unit. And the letter writer, anonymous, and I still don't know to this day, um, who sent that fax, uh, said the Chicago Police Department's been investigating for two years. You can call Sergeant Chizuski of the Sex Crimes Unit. So Monday morning, I, I went in to work once a week to pick right. up the CDs, you know, <laughs> and show my face to editors, but hopefully not see them. So I could have been seen, but left without getting more right, work. Right, you got your credit for showing up. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so... I called CPD switchboard and asked for Sergeant Chizuski the na the way it was spelled in the... Because uh, I thought, look, if you're going to make something up, you're not going to make up a great Polish cop name. <laughs> That's it. Like that. <laughs> you're just not going to make up that Polish cop name. And just it getting was, the consonants right would be hard it to... It was completely spelled wrong. Yeah. And I almost hung up when the operator told me we don't have anybody with that name. And I said, can you check? Do you have anybody with a similar surname Polish in sex crimes? And a woman picked up the phone, said... Chizuski, Special Investigations. I said, I'm calling from the Chicago Sun-Times uh, about the investigation into R. Kelly. And she said, oh, I was wondering how long it would take before somebody called about that. I can't talk to you and hung up. Jesus. Now, what year was this? This was uh, November 2000. There was no tape operator, recording engineer, publicist, radio programmer, uh, writer. It had always been in the air. R. Kelly likes them young. And I don't think anybody had stopped to really think about what that meant. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole thing with Aaliyah, he had denied it, she had denied it. Were they married in 1994? Was she 15? Was she 18? What had really happened? So I was already almost a decade late to that story in November right. 2000. Our first story, me and Abdon Palish, 
took six weeks to report. It ran December 21, 2000. And uh, we honestly thought that December 22, 2000, R. Kelly's career would be over. And then we thought the same thing again in February of 2002 when I got a 26-minute, 39-second videotape of him having sex with a 14-year-old, which is the single most horrifying thing. I can't imagine can't yeah, imagine. I had to pop Toy Story 2 oh, yeah. out of my, doys, my daughter's VCR. It was the only VCR we had. She was in preschool, and I was working at home on the northwest side. And I got a call. Go to your mailbox. Click. And there was this tape. And uh, it, you can't unsee something sure. like that. And yet, R. Kelly was never more successful from the time he was indicted in June 2002 Um uh, uh, until now. I mean, the biggest, most success of his career came after he was accused of making child pornography, came after the Sun-Times revealed four civil lawsuits, three of them by underage girls, came after the bulk of our reporting. It made him more popular. And see, that's just nuts that he was charged with child pornography, and that was that was it. Yeah, that he got away with it. Well, well, it's very complicated. That's what takes a whole book to tell. Fair enough. You know, I mean, every system in this city failed. The courts failed. The cops failed. Uh, the civil attorneys failed. The churches failed. The, I mean, I have connections in the book to Jackson and Farrakhan. Sure. Um, you know, the journalism failed because where was the Tribune on this story? Where was no the national media? Up. Nobody stepped up. And, and it's a systemic failure to care about young black girls. Is that something, you, I'm assuming it is, something you talk about in the book, like why, why the Tribune, why New York Times, why they yeah. didn't? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was shooting for the kind of books that inspired me to become a journalist, albeit a music journalist. You know, I teach at Columbia College. Uh, one of my courses is Journalism as Literature. And we start with Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and Joan Didion, some dreamers of the golden green, dream, and we, we read the right stuff. And we go up to Susan Orlean and Mark Bowden. And, uh, uh, you know, th- this notion that journalism, uh, Tom Wolfe says in his epic anthology, The New Journalism, you know, journalism can use the techniques of the short story writer or the novelist, but it will be more powerful because it is real life. Um, I believe in that ideal, and that's what I was trying to do. Long after anybody gives a shit about who that son of a bitch who destroyed so many lives was, uh, I think that this will be a book about systems failing Mm -hmm. and in the Me Too movement moment how even now when we are considering uh you know joe biden has to come to a reckoning you know uh i mean still no victim matters if she is a young black girl we don't believe they are they are the 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 ultimate victim because no one will listen to them and i don't know james you've known me a long time i am a fat white grumpy rock critic i do not have special powers to ring doorbells on the south and west sides of the city Abdon Palish and I went and we talked to people who were eager to talk because nobody was listening to them. That was as simple as that. you know. And I think I had this other advantage, James. Um, I could talk about music. Mm-hmm. I, right. I, I could talk about music. I, it's like, you know, I'm ringing the bell. Uh, I'm not a cop. That's fairly obvious. <laughs> I'm also not necessarily somebody uh, that many of these people could relate to. Um, Except, like, I knew who Parliament Funkadelic was and, and Mavis Staples, and I'd interviewed them both, you know. And so we had this common ground. Now, this is what I think Bordis has to do with this damn book, James, is if music 
can be, as I have believed since age 13, the ultimate tool to save us. Uh, you know, rock and roll by the Velvet Underground. Jenny said when she was just five years old, you know, that New York radio station, mm -hmm. couldn't believe her life, her life was saved, saved by, by rock, and rock and roll. All right. Mm -hmm. The reason I am not a fat, racist Jersey City cop, the fat parts here, um, is, is, is I discovered the music and I discovered the writing about it. It was both. It was the writing that put it in context and it was the music. Um, you know, I believe that this community... Uh, I believe that the world can be better uh, in part through music because it changes us. I'm not talking Bono crap or 60s romanticization. The music stopped the war, man. No. The music makes us think and the music unites us even when we don't think we have anything in common. What am I talking about? God damn it, if you dropped Mavis Staples down in the middle of those fucking assholes rioting in Charlottesville and she sang... Right, the way she sang, walking arm in arm with Dr. King in the face of fire hoses and bulldogs and and batons being swung at her, and she sang, and they changed the world. Didn't change enough, but it started to change. Yeah. All right, and I think that's what we need today. If all of that is true, and you can call me a naive asshole for saying it, uh, I think we have to ask ourselves the opposite: Is music, therefore, also the ultimate tool to ruin lives? And I've had three or four young women who were part of Kelly's circle, some of them that he had sex with underage, who've compared it to Manson, which the first time I heard it, it was jarring. Mm -hmm. You know, because I'm hearing it from a 22-year-old uh, black girl, and I'm even thinking, like, look, my context for Charles Manson is Sonic Youth, Death Valley 69. You know what I mean? I'm not that old, you right, know. Right. I was five when the Manson killings happened, right? So I have to read about them later after hearing, like, you know, indie rockers think they're cool, drop them in the songs. Right. Um, you know, there, there was a sort of power there. And Charlie said two things. Uh, when he sat with David Dalton, Bill Wyman told me, go back. When... I was comparing the power that Kelly had over women to Rasputin, which was a little too highfalutin. Wyman said, go back and read David Dalton and David Felton's piece in Rolling Stone about Manson. They mm -hmm. did an entire issue of Rolling Stone before Helter Skelter, Bugliosi's book, before Ed Sanders' book. And uh, they sat with Charlie, and Charlie had two tools, he said. Number one, I recognize the ones, the girls he's talking about, with a glitch, something broken. I knew who to choose. Mm -hmm. And number two, he said, I had music. Mm -hmm. You know, the book opens with the facts and it ends with uh, the very first girl who tried to stop him. Uh, he picked her up in her high school choir class at Kenwood Academy in uh, 1991. That, that sound you hear is my flesh crawling. <laughs> yeah, I know, oh, I know. Jesus. Her high school choir class, a Chicago public school. And the class was taught by Lena McClinn. She's the uh, niece of the Reverend Thomas A. Dorsey, the man who invents modern gospel music. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she sued in 1996, only after the state's attorney of Illinois refused to press a criminal claim. So she files a civil claim and settles it in 98. And uh, it ends with her. Uh, I finally met her in January. She's uh, never spoken to anybody uh, all these years, and she wanted to talk to me. The book ends with her. And James, I said to her, Come to this Bordis gig at the hideout where we're going to celebrate the release of, uh, of our record and my book. 
And it's got to have those two things. It's got to have music. I, I don't give a fuck, man. I'll buy all the records and hand them out for free. I'll buy all the books and hand them out for free. I'm not, it's not about self-promotion. But I said to her, uh, sing with us. She had toured the world with Aaliyah, mm-hmm. her best friend, singing behind Aaliyah. From Cottage Grove Heights, she sees Rome, Paris, Amsterdam, yeah. London, tours America. And he has sex with her at 15, and Aaliyah, and five of her friends who are 15, and takes away from her the joy of music, singing, takes away from her her virginity, takes away from her, her friendships, and uh, and she's she's all right. Her daughter now is as old as she was when. Yeah. She has a really solid job, and she has made something of her life. And uh, it's like, I'd love to hear her sing. That's, you know. Yeah. I would love to give that back to her. I, I love that. Yeah, well, that's me. I'm a sap. When She the- keeps texting me, LOL. I keep trying to talk her into it. <laughs> Come and sing. We won't suck for that occasion. Right, boys? No, we'll, we'll learn something. We'll learn. Whatever she wants to sing. When the documentary came out and people seemed to finally just wake up, was your response, where the fuck were you guys? No, we're- no. I have never been territorial or fearing a scoop on this story. I, I don't I, mean that, but I, like, I, where, where, where was the outrage before? Not, not even pointed at journalism, but... Society at large suddenly waking up to this. Were you thinking, come on? No, I, I thought it was about time. The only feeling I have is too little, too late. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I understand, you know, Dream is someone I respect enormously. Dream Hampton was the showrunner. I do not respect Bonham Murray. The production company is the same that brought us the real world and keeping up with the Kardashians. And isn't that part of the problem? Hmm. This blurring yeah. of reality and celebrity uberales, right? Um, but Dream was not connected, when, and I wouldn't work with Bunham Murray. And I th- Dream did something valuable. For 19 years, I've sat with women as they've done the hardest thing any woman can do, which is rip out their soul yeah. and tell me about their sexual assault. Um, and it's them who have affected this. Appearing on the on camera and America getting to meet some of those women, um, you know, it's them who, who've done it. You know, there was a Washington Post column that I write about near the end of the book uh, not long ago. Margaret Sullivan's a brilliant media columnist. She said, you know, investigative journalism couldn't do it. It took a hashtag, mute R. Kelly, and, uh, and a, a docuseries. And I don't think any of that's true. I think all of that played a role. But it was these women, James, for 20 years, risking uh, financial ruin, risking, uh, fearing for their lives uh, to speak out. Uh, It's, it's, you know, I was a megaphone. I was amplifying what they were telling me. And I'm sure that R. Kelly machine is uh, intimidating. It used to be more. He's broke now. Mm-hmm. I think even that wouldn't be doing it now unless he was... I mean, he played last night for 28 seconds in Springfield. It was $100 a ticket, uh, a club show, after he got booted off a uh, uh, state fairgrounds show that was supposed to be a real concert. So then he's doing this after show. He shows up and he sings for 28 seconds a couple of lines of bump and grind. It was supposed to be $100 to party with, have your picture taken with, get an autograph from R. Kelly. 50 people showed up. <laughs> he's done. You know, Mute R. Kelly has effectively... Yeah. I, I have... 
you asked the question earlier about free speech, and I, I have philosophical problems with the idea of stamping out. I mean, I'm sure. Mein Kampf should be in print so that we mm-hmm. can read it and exactly. study what exactly hatred right. looked like. Um, should Kelly still be played at backyard barbecues, at weddings, at church on Sunday? That's a more difficult question. Um, but what Mutar Kelly set out to do was take away his power to commit these crimes by taking away his income. Right, for you sure. Know. But RCA Records, you know, it still hasn't commented, but they've dropped him from their label. You know, I mean, he made 15 major label albums, sold 100 million records, generated for himself a quarter of a billion dollars, and a full billion dollars for Jive Records, which was quite possibly neck and neck with Interscope for the sleaziest record company ever. I mean, you know, they're also enabling the sexualization of Britney Spears at age yep. 14 and Lou Pearlman is bringing them Backstreet Boys and NSYNC uh, right. while he is is later convicted of fraud and sexual abuse of young boys. Yep. I mean, you know, nothing mattered to the old school music industry except money. And it is extinct, James. Oh, it is, absolutely. We is. have killed it. So... The, the book, again, is called Solus. The Case Against R. Kelly, yeah. And it comes out in June. June 4th. Okay. I, I, the details are laid out. On the out. web, on the interwebs, yes. They're on the web. I guess the question I have for you, and there, there's so much. I mean, this was just a soupçon of uh, what we can find in your book, a, a mere yeah. taste of, of what... A soupçon, that's you know, very good. Thank you. Uh, an amuse-bouche. <laughs> amuse-bouche, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess the question I have for you, as someone who's been in this, talking to the victims, chronicling the story, where do you see him ending up? Does he go to jail? I think the Chicago case against him is very, very weak. Very weak. It's going to fall apart. But there's a 26-member federal task force that has interviewed everybody I've ever interviewed. They've been fanning out Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Atlanta, New York, uh, Florida, Miami. Um, I think... If the federal charges of 30 years of sex trafficking and students of rock history, violations of the Mann Act, for which Chuck Berry was imprisoned, mm-hmm. uh, transporting underage girls across state lines for immoral purposes, um, and it exists and people are yeah. still charged for it, um, I think the federal case will be real. I think Chicago will fuck it up again. I mean, you know, it took six years to go to trial. 2002, he's indicted. 2008, it goes to trial. And he's acquitted. On like 22 counts, right? 21 counts of making child pornography. A jury of his peers acquits him because the girl in the videotape, her mother and her father, never testified. But 15 witnesses did. And uh, the state had 50 before the grand jury. Um, You know, that's a complicated story. It's in the book. You know, I don't know. He has nine lives. He could... Fade into uh, oblivion slowly playing, you know, strip clubs in Springfield where 50 people turn up, uh, which would be pathetic enough. Or he could get off scot-free. And, and here's a troubling thing. He, his career resurged when he was re- acquitted. You know, 2013, he sings at Coachella with Phoenix. He headlines Bonnaroo. He headlines Pitchfork. And Black Panties is, uh, you know, one of his most successful albums. Um, By then, people knew. And people embraced him, not despite knowing. Some people embraced him because they knew. Yeah. You know, and that's like being one of those sick motherfuckers 
who wants to have a piece of John Wayne Gacy jailhouse art in your you know, exactly living right. room. I mean, or or you're collecting Manson family memorabilia. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, I, your commitment to the story and, and seeing this to to its end, and really the the work you've done on behalf of the people victimized by this uh, is exemplary. Thank you for everything you've done. It's all part of the same thing to me, you know. The rock, the playing music, teaching, writing about it uh, is all, uh, you know. You use the tool you have. I'll tell you something. He's been relentless with it too, because yeah. we'll be at rehearsals. He's feeling, talking to people on the phone, talking to victims' families, working on it. We, we were in a show not too long ago. He had to leave oh, yeah. after uh, we got there for load in, sound check, and we, had, you know, you wait between then. He had to go to the south side to try to work on a story to get into that warehouse. It was I just mean, Justine Street. Um, he, it, it, the family of one of those girls had flown in from Florida and were being threatened with arrest for trying to see their daughter at the recording studio Jesus on Justine Christ. Street, which is half a block from Pitchfork where yeah. they headlined. You know, so, you know, um, yeah, there's some vindication in this book. You know, when I was decrying Pitchfork booking him in 2013. I remember. I'm old, fat, clueless. I remember. Pompous, uh, out of touch, you know. And it's like, what do Mike Reed and uh, Chris Kasky and Ryan Schreiber say today? Right. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. Uh, All right, so the book is out in June. June 4th. Uh, we can hear you weekly on the radio. The sound of podcast, yes. Uh, the radio podcast show form. program, yes. Uh, a, sh- <laughs> a show I once produced. As someone said, You did. Talk about working together on sound opinions at Q101. We kind of did. We did. Uh, what was it? Were you there the night Blur was there? Yeah. Remember, they ate about 100 pounds of pistachios. That is true. And left them all over the floor. <laughs> That's what I remember. Park they, life, circa park life. Nobody wanted them. Nobody, nobody liked them. them. They did a terrible version of, I want to say, Bank Holiday. I, I thought it was pretty great. It was blur. It was blur. It was one o'clock in the morning on <laughs> Q one oh one. That was pretty fucking great. Yeah, I mean, we had the flaming lips in there. We had John yeah. Kale. We had Hitchcock. Robin, Robin Hitchcock, Hitchcock yeah. former Carcon Carne guest. I just yes, wanted yes, to yes, say yes. that. Uh yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was great. That was, I mean that was I mean, We had Courtney Love live for two hours. Oh my god, that's right. Yeah, and we blew through the commercials. Uh huh. And the dump button never got more of a workout in the history of radio. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, oh yeah. She was that was yeah. amazing. All right, so Sound Opinions, we can hear you there. Vortis, the band. We started the show with Vortis. Damn it all, we're going to end with Vortis. The new album is available on vinyl. It's a handsome-looking vinyl. Cave Tone Records, right? Mm-hmm. Louis, you, you should say something, Louis. Cave Tone Records. There it is. <laughs> well said. Do you know, you know, you, you watch television. Yes, on occasion. Yes. You've seen the Maytag commercials? Yes. With the Maytag man is the refrigerator and they throw leftovers uh-huh. at him. Louis wrote those. Get out. Louis wrote those. He's an advertising titan. Yeah. On to segment three of the show. <laughs> where Louis comes out. <laughs> now, you wouldn't know that he was in this game, right? Because he said like four words. Right. I got yeah. nothing to say. He's like a quiet storm. <laughs> ah, there you go. Uh, Gina says, ew, nightmare to be stuck with Courtney Love for two hours. No, that's not true. Courtney Love is the smartest, one of the smartest women I've ever met. She's also one of the most troubled. Mm -hmm. If you recall, she was simultaneously insulting us, seducing us, joking about something she said five minutes ago, steering where the conversation. It was some of the most bonkers radio. It was what I think that call was the sort of thing I got into radio for. Yeah, that all the rules are gone. We have this, and and there's a crystalline truth. Remember what she said about Corrigan. 
She insulted Gorgas. She said, you know what they call him, the road crew? The pear-shaped boy. <laughs> Which I just thought was perfect. And then she, I asked her about Grohl. And she said, but she said, all I have to know about Dave Grohl is he and Albini are the guys that went out back when they were making In Utero to set their farts on fire. And I'm like, you know, that has proven to be just about all you do need to know about Dave Grohl. You know what I mean? Because I like the first Foo Fighters record and then, sure. you know, not since. Not even a song here or there? It was very nice of him to book Naked Raygun and Urge Overkill at Wrigley. But uh, no, I mean, that's an irredeemable career. Here's, okay, now that we're going down this road, I went to both those Foo Fighters shows at Wrigley Field last year. I respect a band that can change up their set list every night, especially at that level. Pearl Jam does it. But every Foo Fighters song is the same. Well, my point is Foo Fighters <laughs> had the exact same set list yeah. both nights, and you've got to assume there will be fans going to both nights. Yeah. I, I think you owe them... Yeah. A different set list. But what would it have mattered? It's one song. Snarkiness aside, one thing I hated <laughs> about the same show both nights, the same exact patter between songs about oh, Reagan. Oh, my God. Oh, no. About going to Cubby Bear and seeing a band yeah, from Chicago. Yeah, naked Reagan. My older cousin took me. I know, the whole thing. Yeah. Same. I mean, it was note for note. Yeah. The same. That, that drives me nuts. Like when I had Hitchcock on last week, I mean, I love and respect the fact that you never know what you're going to get. No, no. And as a fan, that's what you want. You want to be excited. The internet spoils everything. You could look at setlist.fm and know exactly what your favorite band's going to be yeah. playing yeah, when yeah, you yeah. see them. I, I like a little bit of mystery. I like, of course, especially I, when you're a band with a 10, 12, 15 year career. Right. Exactly. All right. So, sound opinions. Uh, you've got a, a shelf's worth of books that you put out. Uh, Kaleidoscope Eyes mentioned earlier. We I wrote the introduction book. to your book. You add the book that never came out. Did it never come out? It never came out. Oh, I'm sorry. But it was a great intro. <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> I have a copy, though. No, that was a different book. The, the Q101 book? Oh, the Q101 book. All yeah, right. Tim, all right. The other book didn't come yeah, out. Yeah, Tim right. McElrath okay. of Rise Against wrote the intro to that. All right. Well, I've God written... Yeah, all right. But I've written, written so... Yeah, yeah, right. We go way back, I guess, is the point. Yes. Um, so we'll get the book. Uh, thank you for staying on that. Thank you for being an exemplary journalist. Vortis, thank you for just... Rocking the hell out of your 90-second songs and Thanks doing what you do. Love you guys, and thank you for eating some of the greasiest tacos. Yep. It was good, though, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, that was some great El Pastor. That it was, was good. fantastic. My, I, I'm not going to shake hands with you and you leave because I, just, <laughs> I have a protective film. We and won't the, take it. Yeah, yeah, there is that. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right, and if you're watching on Facebook Live, thank you so much for watching. This is Carcone Carne, presented by the Autobahn Mazda of Evanston. If you like this show, please tell a friend, support them. Thank you for watching and listening.